Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And Gordon Sondland testified. The testimony is now starting to come out. You know, before the House impeachment hearings, he was uh, one of the characters involved in this whole effort to squeeze Ukraine, to shake down Ukraine and get them to manufacture some dirt on Joe Biden and to get them to prove that it wasn't Russia who hacked the DNC servers. It was actually somebody in Ukraine, a Democrat from the American Democratic Party in Ukraine, hacking the servers. Yes, that's the theory. So anyhow, Sondland said in his testimony, apparently, that, yeah, I mean, we don't have a transcript yet, but we have all these leaks that have come out, said that he was disappointed that he was being asked to coordinate with Giuliani on this thing and that he thought that uh, State Department people should be handling this kind of stuff rather than people like Giuliani which is kind of weird because his text messages, which we now actually have, this is one where he was on a text message with uh, Mr. Volker, who was you know, part of this little conspiracy, and with Giuliani. And Volker says, hi, Mr. Mayor, had a good chat with uh, U- Ukrainian presidential aide Andriy Zermak last night. He was pleased with your phone call. Mentioned Z making a statement. That's the president of Ukraine. Can we all get on the phone to make sure I advise Z correctly as to what he should be saying? We want to get this done right. So here's Volker saying we need to kind of rehearse the president of Ukraine and get, you know, get all this stuff right. And Sondland replies, good idea, Kurt. I'm on Pacific time. And Giuliani replies, yes, you can call me right now. So this is what we have going on, which raises the question, who is this guy, Gordon Sondland? Well, you know, he's from Portland and he owns a bunch of hotels, uh, not just in Portland, they're all over the country. They're these real high-end, you know, uh, fancy schmancy hotels. He basically gave a million dollars to Donald Trump's inaugural committee through four of his companies to buy his ambassadorship to the European Union. But Steve Dean writes a column for the Oregonian, which is our local newspaper here, although it's owned by a company out of New York. It's, you know, it does some good local coverage. And Steve Dean is a pretty solid reporter and op-ed writer and has been doing so for the Oregonian. OregonLive.com is their website for years and years. And so he brings this up and, you know, and he says that the Portland hotelier and his wife, Catherine Durant, were cashing in as landlords to a bunch of video poker bars in a particular neighborhood here in Portland. And Steve Dean writes, they were thinking about adding a gentleman's club to their business empire when the neighbors complained. And then he talked, this was nine years ago, he talked to Sondland about it at the time. Steve Dean did, this local columnist here in Portland. And Steve Dean writes that the the local homeowners near where Sondland was thinking of putting in a strip club uh, were understandably alarmed. They could not believe Sondland, then president of the board of the Portland Art Museum, and his wife Durant, a fixture on the Oregon Investment Council, would even consider such an offer. So what did Sondland said? Well, (laughs) like I said, Steve Dean interviewed him. Here's what he said. He said he accused the homeowners of, quote, extortive, end quote, demands. 
Sondland said, we don't respond well to extortion. Go ahead and go public. We really don't care. Steve Dean writes, Sondland said his obligation was to his profits and his investors, not the quality of life and commerce in this particular neighborhood of Portland. Sondland said, you're implying that because I serve on the art museum board, which is something I'm doing for the community, that somehow that somehow carries the responsibility to encumber my real estate. In other words, not put strip clubs into his strip malls. He says, I don't understand the connection. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why would I put an artificial restriction on our property? Why would we do that? Sondland says. Steam Dean says, well, because of the families down the street, the property values in the shadow of Lottery Row. And then Steve Dean kind of wraps it up. He says, Sondland's running scared now, worried that his chic hotels will be tarred with the impeachment frenzy. Trump may already have a derisive nickname in the works. Yeah. I'm fully expecting that. A couple of other things. An old friend of mine, the guy who was my mentor in writing, the guy who taught me how to write books, Michael Kurland, has a new book out. It's called The Bells of Hell. It's being published by a publisher out of the UK, but it's available in the United States. Just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Michael is one of the best writers out there. This is a novel that has a, a swastika on its cover. I mean, well, you can look it up, but I... I wanted to give you a heads up on that. Those of you who enjoy good fiction, you will love Michael Curlin's writing. And then uh, finally here, uh, Joyce uh, Vance, Joyce White Vance is uh, tweeting that uh, Donald Trump's New York State tax filings, this is something that Michael Cohen laid out when he was testifying before Congress. He said, Trump has basically two sets of books. When he gives accounting records, to the IRS, to the tax people, to the, particularly to the property tax people, the local tax people, he makes it look like his properties are losing money and therefore his taxes should be lowered. When he gives his books to his banks asking for more loans, he makes it look like his hotels are making money hand over fist and therefore they should make more loans. This is a crime. This is a felony. There are actually people in prison all over the country for doing exactly this. And Joyce Vance, who has become kind of a media star from being on MSNBC so much, she's really good. She's really smart. She's a former federal prosecutor. She says, no surprise that Trump's New York state tax filings are inconsistent with bank loan applications. Perhaps there's an explanation, but it looks like either bank fraud or tax fraud, and at a minimum, merits further investigation. I think it's both. Finally, there's a story over at Axios, and I can't share the details of it with you because I can't print from their website, but... Over at Axios, they're talking about how the suicide rate for American teenagers has been going up fairly steadily over the last five or six years. And then The Economist tweeted this out yesterday. According to the UN, the chance of a 15-year-old boy dying by the age of 50, so get this, we're talking lifespan, right? The chance of a 15-year-old American boy dying by the age of 50 is now higher in the United States than in Bangladesh. And you wonder what Reaganomics has done to America. It's incredible. Terry in Eugene, Oregon. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind? How are you doing, Tom? I had an observation of, didn't Giuliani say a little while ago, I'm going to be the hero of this, watch me be the hero, or something to that effect? I just got to think, in my opinion, unless I'm missing something, he seems to be the one, one person that can take Trump down. So just imagine if he flipped, gave in all of the information that actually took Trump down, impeachment-wise, even criminal-wise, and actually ended up being the hero of this whole entire thing, that Giuliani is the one that took Trump down. Right. If he did a John Dean. 100%. Yeah. yeah. It, I think it doesn't it's a, seem out of the world of the possibilities. I th you know, yeah, I think it's entirely possible. Terry, thanks. That's an interesting thought. Cross our fingers. Ivan in Bartlett, Illinois. Hey, Ivan, what's on your mind today? I was so happy to hear... Congresswoman and true progressive AOC and Ilhan Omar endorsed Bernie. Yeah, three out of the four I, members of the squad have now endorsed Bernie. I hope this will go a long way in bringing more women into supporting Bernie's campaign. What do you think? I think it may well. I think certainly they're all women. They have generally put progressive issues front and center rather than just exclusively women's issues and progressive issues for millennials, I mean, for young people. So it may be that they'll bring more young people in than they'll bring women in, but it's going to help 
in either direction. So, you know, spot on, Ivan. Thanks a lot for the call. Zach in North Hollywood, California. Hey, Zach, what's up? Uh, real quick, may I suggest that we have a system that is the far right and the rest of us? And we've got to stop using their language. That's it. There is no far left. I mean, actually, there is a far left. And I had the president of the Communist Party of the United States on this program, what, eight years ago, Sean? And I was like, you know, how's it going? And he's like, oh, great. We're up to 600 members. I mean, you know, it's that's the far left. Right. And there is a far left in America, but none of them are elected. None of them are in the Democratic Party and none of them have any consequential. I mean, you you, you have parliamentary systems, you know, uh, Israel, France, Germany and those in those countries where you've got parliamentary systems and proportional representation, you actually have communist parties and they actually have a seat or two in parliament or the Knesset. But not here in the United States. There's no far left in the United States. To my main point. We should have a safety valve in our system for another possible Trump. And I've been wanting to ask you, since you're more of a historian than I am, I don't know if there's ever been an incident of anything like this before, but couldn't we have the president, since he's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, couldn't he be convicted of insubordination in a military court? No, no, he's not subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, but he could be convicted of a crime. I mean, he has committed multiple crimes right in front of us. His lawyer is sitting in jail in part for two crimes that Donald Trump ordered him to commit, campaign finance violations, you know, paying off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Donald Trump could just as easily be sitting in jail for that, except for the fact that the Nixon Office of Legal Counsel you know, the advisory agency within the Department of Justice said, oh, you can't prosecute a sitting president because he's so busy and what he does is so vital to the country. It would be bad for the country to prosecute him. I think that needs to be revisited, Zach. I think it's bad for the country not to prosecute him. It sets the example that if you're rich enough or if you're powerful enough, you are above and beyond the reach of the law. And that is not the American way. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And, of course, Bill Barr, you know, our corrupt attorney general, is just hanging on to that old OLC uh, ruling and the, and the revision of it by, by Clinton's OLC in 2000. Today we're reading from Martha Nussbaum's new book, The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. This is from the introduction. There's a lot of fear around in the U.S. today, and this fear is often mingled with anger, blame, and envy. Fear all too often blocks rational deliberation, poisons hope, and impedes constructive cooperation for a better future. What is today's fear about? Well, many Americans feel themselves powerless out of control of their own lives. They fear that the American dream, the hope that our children will flourish and do even better than you have done, has died and that everything has slipped away from them. These feelings have their basis in real problems. Among others, income stagnation in the lower middle class, alarming declines in the health and longevity of members of this group, especially men, and the escalating costs of higher education at the very time that a college degree is increasingly required for employment. But real problems are difficult to solve, and their solutions take long, hard study and cooperative work toward an uncertain future. It can consequently seem all too attractive to convert that sense of panic and impotence into blame and the othering of outsider groups such as immigrants, racial minorities, and women. They have taken our jobs, or wealthy elites have stolen our country. The problems that globalization and automation create for working class Americans are real, deep, and seemingly intractable. Rather than face those difficulties and uncertainties, people who sense their standard of living declining can instead grasp after villains, and a fantasy takes shape. If we can somehow keep them out, build a wall, or keep them in their place in subservient positions, we can regain our pride and, for men, their masculinity. Fear leads then to aggressive othering strategies rather than to useful analysis. At the same time, fear also runs rampant among people on the left, who seek greater social and economic equality and the vigorous protection of hard-won rights for women and minorities. Many people who are dismayed by the election are reacting to it as if the end of the world is at hand. 
A majority of my students, many acquaintances, many colleagues feel and say often with anguish that our democracy is on the verge of collapse, that the new administration is unprecedented in its willingness to cater to racism, misogyny, and homophobia. They fear especially for the possible collapse of democratic freedoms, speech, travel, association, the press. My younger students especially think that the America they know and love is about to disappear. Rather than analyze matters soberly and listen to other people trying to sort things through, they often demonize an entire half of the American electorate, portraying them as monsters, enemies of everything good. As in the book of Revelation, these are the last days when a righteous remnant must contend against satanic forces. We all need first to take a deep breath and recall our history. When I was a little girl, African Americans were being lynched in the South. Communists were losing their jobs. Women were just barely beginning to enter prestigious universities in the workforce, and sexual harassment was a ubiquitous offense that had no laws to deter it. Jews could not win partnerships in major law firms. Gays and lesbians, criminals under law, were almost always in the closet. People with disabilities had no rights in public space and public education. Transgender was a category that had as yet no name. America was far from beautiful. These facts tell us two things my students need to know. First, the America for which they are nostalgic never existed, not fully. It was a work in progress, a set of dynamic aspirations put in motion by tough work, cooperation, hope, and solidarity over a long period of time. A just and inclusive America never was, and is not yet a fully achieved reality. Second, this present moment may look like backsliding from our march toward human equality, but it's not the apocalypse, and it's actually a time when hope and work can accomplish a great deal of good. On both left and right, panic doesn't just exaggerate our dangers, it also makes our moment much more dangerous than it would otherwise be, more likely to lead to genuine disasters. It's like a bad marriage in which fear, suspicion, and blame displace careful thought about what the real problems are and how to resolve them. Instead, those emotions taking over become their own problem and prevent constructive work, hope, listening, and cooperation. When people are afraid of one another and of an unknown future, fear easily gives rise to scapegoating, to fantasies of payback, and to a poisonous envy of the fortunate, whether those victorious in the election or those dominant socially and economically. We all remember FDR's statement that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We recently heard departing President Obama say, democracy can buggle when we give in to fear. Roosevelt was wrong if we take his words literally, Although we had reason to fear fear, we certainly had many other things to fear in his time, such as Nazism, hunger, and social conflict. Fear of those evils was rational, and to that extent, we should not fear our fear, though we should always examine it. But Obama's more precise and modest statement is surely right. Giving way to fear, which means drifting with its currents, refusing skeptical examination, is surely dangerous. We need to think hard about fear, and where fear is leading us. After taking a deep breath, we all need to understand ourselves as well as we can, using that moment of detachment to figure out where fear and related emotions come from and where they are leading us. The Monarchy of Fear by Martha Nussbaum. A lot of people like to get away just after the holidays and maybe take a vacation, maybe go scuba diving, take a cruise. Nice time to lose weight in anticipation of that, right? Uh, try Ridges Zone. Ridges Zone, Louise told me about this. She said once her appetite and cravings, she tried it out about a year ago, and she said once her appetite and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy, and she's kept it off. My producer, Sean, was so impressed with Louise's results that she's trying Ridges Zone, too. Sean wants to lose a little weight before the holidays, and she says Ridges Zone is the easiest diet supplement she's ever used. One capsule with breakfast, and that's it. No jitters, no hunger, no wild food cravings. Sean says meals are no longer a battle not to overeat. She feels full faster and has reduced portion sizes accordingly. Also says she feels full longer, so no more grazing between meals either. The only ingredient in Ridizone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant. That really appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to RidUZone.com. It's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. RidUZone.com. Promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. RidUZone.com.
Tom Harbin here with you. There's a couple of things that I wanted to just lay on the table and have a conversation with you about. Mick Mulvaney coming out and saying, yeah, of course we did it. You know, get over it. It's just politics. And Mike Pence going to Turkey where Erdogan won't even have an American flag in the room. Uh, you know, a slap in the face to America. This totally bizarre man in the White House. And then on top of all of this, we lose Elijah Cummings. He was born just five months before me, I mean, which is a little kind of close to the bone. And just an extraordinary, extraordinary man who was such a role model of true statesmanship. On the line was, is our old buddy Joe Madison, the host of his own show, The Joe Madison Show on Sirius XM on the Urban View channel in the mornings. Joe, welcome back to the program. It's always nice talking with you. Well, yeah, it's always good to talk about public policy and other issues. I'm just sad that to the news that, you know, Elijah Cummings had passed away. Yes. But I do want to comment on this thing about the American flag not even being in the room with the vice president. And I think Elijah Cummings would agree with me, Tom. This shows the ultimate disrespect for the presidency, for the United States. And it's because they disrespect this man who is now president of the United States. Yeah. I mean, this is a symbolic slap in the face. And the president of Turkey, I think, just has his number. Uh, Elijah Cummings and I were fraternity brothers, Phi Beta Sigma. We, were on a, both, we both became honorary members. Uh, Phi Beta Sigma, along with, you remember, uh, Charles Overtree, mm -hmm. the uh, outstanding uh, professor of law from Harvard, and all of us were brought into that fraternity together. And he also listened, Tom, to the show every single morning. I know he spoke of you many times. You know, he obviously really loved you in the show. And my sense was, I don't, th I don't think that you and I have talked specifically about Elijah Cummings before, but my guess was that you guys knew each other in more than just a casual way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, we were fraternity brothers and went in together. But, you know, the district he represented, and I want people to understand something, and forgive the noise in the background, but he came from a district that was represented by very strong men. Historically, you should understand, the first representative, the first African-American representative of his district was Perrin Mitchell. Hmm. And he came from a political family, a civil rights family. He was the brother of Clarence Mitchell, who was known as the 101st senator. He was a lobbyist for the NAACP and one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus. And then when he passed away or retired, Kwaisi and Fumi. Mm -hmm. And then after Kwaisi and Fumi gave up the seat to become the head of the NACP, then it was Elijah Cummings. And all three were very strong, outspoken uh, members of Congress and represented their district in a very unique way. But Elijah Cummings used to tell this story about how he always loved this story about how when he was in high school, I guess someone in his school, I don't know if it was a teacher, said he'd never amount to anything. He wasn't smart enough to be a lawyer. Well. And he went on not only to graduate from college, Howard, but he graduated from law school. And you know who his first client was? No. A person who said he'd never be a lawyer. <laughs> oh, really? Was his first this te that yes. teacher? Wow! <laughs> it, it was that teacher was his that's, first client. That's that's incredible. That's that's a beautiful yeah. beautiful story. So, I mean, Elijah Cummings is also the chair of the House Oversight Committee, which is one of the five committees that are oh. conducting impeachment hearings. What is this going to mean for the impeachment process? And just the idea that somebody could fill his shoes. He he was his voice had such authority. He was such a huge figure. And that's absolutely right. And one of the reasons he was as effective as he was, unlike our president uh, that we have now, he listened to his staff. I think that's what people ought to understand. He had a very powerful staff, a very effective group of, of staff people who listened to him. 
And, uh, they, you know, now they have someone, I guess, who will a uh, temporary member of Congress, but they will probably have the same staff. So we can look at that as hopefully a positive. And the only thing I can say to you, and, and people say this all the time, who's going to fill his shoes? My response to that is you can't fill his shoes. Right. You, I mean, let's just be quite honest. What you have to do is create your own footprints. Yeah. And that's what I hope they will look for someone that Nancy Pelosi and the leadership will look to someone who will just follow through with the work that he has uh, done at this time. But no one, and this is what we're really saying to each other, was as passionate, as intelligent. And let me tell you, man, and I won't use profanity on your show, but I think you'll understand this. (laughs) He he didn't take any stuff. Yeah, I get it. Anybody. Yeah. You get it. <laughs> yeah, I get it. You and, get it. And that, and that was that was so that was so clear. Anybody. Yes. And but at the same time, unlike a lot of his colleagues, he never had a harsh word to say outside that committee to his political opponents. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're getting condolences from people across the aisle. He was. You said. I think you said it. He was a statesman. Yeah. And that's what we're lacking. And that's why I think people feel this great loss from all sides. Yeah. A personal loss on your yeah. end as a, as a friend and a, and a but, you institutional know, we, loss I, I should, I should, Yeah, I should point out, we, we knew that this was coming. Unfortunately, he had been sick. Yeah, he had and, had heart uh, surgery two years ago, I guess, and, and it didn't yeah, quite take. Yeah, and, you know, I tell people, you can't imagine how intimidating it is to be a talk personality and know that the chairman of one of the most powerful committees is listening to you every day, Tom, on his commute to Washington. And by the way, if you made a mistake, he'd pick up the phone and call. Whoa. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he would tell the producer, Sherry, my executive producer, he would tell her, Joe needs to correct that. Yeah. Or he needs to correct this. Or he would call, get on the air and say, you know what? You're telling the people the truth. And I'm here to validate what you're saying. And that I will always appreciate about him. Yeah. Yeah. A good man, a light is has left, you know, oh, yeah. has left our yeah. world. Or as someone said about Paul Robeson, a mighty tree has fallen in our forest. There you go. There you go. That's brilliant. Joe Madison, every morning, Sirius XM. Joe, thanks so much for being with me today. Hey, thank you, Tom. And thank you. Yeah, good talking. Jim in Los Angeles. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I think of it. We can win back the Senate and hold the House and the presidency, I think the only impediment is vote counters. Is the what? I'm sorry, I missed that word. The people who count the votes. Oh, the vote counters, yeah. In other words, Diebold and Sequoia and all these other companies that have these electronic voting machines and tabulators. I I think Congress should pass a bill, real simple, steal my vote, go to jail. If I any legal American citizen is denied the right to vote or have their vote deliberately miscounted, the person who does this goes to jail. The way that we get there, Jim, is we pass a law or a constitutional amendment, and it could be done either way. The constitutional amendment would be much more, much stronger, that says that all American citizens have an explicit and inalienable right to vote. And then you could easily pass legislation, federal legislation, that says that when state or county officials try to take away your right to vote, as they're trying to do in Ohio right now, where they were going to purge 235,000 people from the voting rolls. This was rolled out a couple of weeks ago, and the head of the League of Women Voters in Ohio discovered that her name was on the list. And that kind of, you know, she blew the whistle on this thing. Then 
that could be dealt with as a crime, as a violation. They are sometimes taking people who have even committed murder and actually prosecuting them under federal law for violating people's the civil right to be alive, right? Sometimes these federal prosecutions can be much more vigorous, even if they seem to be for a much smaller crime. So, you know, such kind of legislation could pass. But the simple fact of the matter is, as at the founding of this republic, the founders only wanted white men to be able to vote. And in fact, there was even a debate among them about whether they should also limit that to, to white men who owned property. They ended up just going with white men. But women couldn't vote. People of color couldn't vote. So therefore, because they didn't want those folks to vote, they did not write into the Constitution an explicit right to vote. So as the Supreme Court pointed out in the Bush v. Gore decision, authored by William Rehnquist, there is no constitutional right to vote for president in the United States Constitution in the United States. There is no right to vote in, at law. And although there are those who would say that's not true, the uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965, I think it is, says, actually, no, it's the Motor Voter Act, and I think that was 1973. The Motor Voter Act says every American citizen has a right to vote. And that has never been seriously looked at by a court. And I would love to see that adjudicated. I'm guessing that the current right-wing Supreme Court would probably take that down. And as much as I like to rant against judicial review, you know, it's what we have. But the Motor Voter Act could be the thing that would give us a right to vote. But you put your finger on a major, major problem that really needs some attention from our legislators. Because this is the principal way since the late 1990s that Republicans have retained power in many red states and nationwide is by suppressing the vote of people that they have good reason to believe will probably vote for Democrats. Louise and I have discovered recently the powerful health benefits of CBD oil. We've been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil for a few months and love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it great for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids without the without getting high, frankly. Uh, CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand we trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, is grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-Leafnaturals.com and get 30% off and free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. Don in Stockton, California. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Good. Thanks for having me. Sure. What's up? With all the vulnerabilities in our election system and with Congress not doing anything, the Senate deciding not to even protect the systems, shouldn't we have a nationwide push to have 50-state mandatory paper ballot voting? That's what H.R. 1 does. That actually passed out of the House of Representatives. Um, Nancy Pelosi got that through. It is sitting at the Senate, and Mitch McConnell is saying that he will not even hold a hearing on it, much less allow there to be a vote on it. But that's what H.R. 1, the very first piece of legislation that the Democrats passed out of the House of Representatives, you know, just a month or two after they took control of the House of Representatives a year and a half ago. That's exactly what it does, Don. Is so, that all that it does? I thought no, that it does a lot more than that. It, 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 yeah. it, it tightens up uh, voter registration rolls. It makes it much harder for Republican states to knock people off your voting rolls. It imposes security requirements on anything that might get on or be anywhere near the Internet. It standardizes voter registration processes uh, among the various states. There's at least 15, 10, 15 things that it does, and frankly, I don't remember all of them, but it's substantial. But one of those pieces is that every ballot cast in the United States has to be cast on paper. So uh, great yeah, minds think, think alike. The bill might be a little weighty, maybe, you know, because of all those different things. But the paper ballot is a simple thing. Maybe it needs to have it be pulled away and just uh, 
we've tried to push forward on, on just its own merits. There is a separate, there is a second piece of legislation that they also passed out of the House. It's not H.R. 2. They passed it quite a bit later. I'm sorry, I don't recall the number, and I'm not sure I ever even knew. But there's a separate piece of legislation that simply requires paper ballots. That also passed the House, and that also is sitting in Mitch McConnell's bottom drawer. Don, thanks for the call. Vic in Stockton, California. Hey, Vic, what's up? All right, Tom. I just want to ask your opinion about something, and I'll take a comment off the air. So this is what I'm thinking. You know, the Republicans never skip a beat. I'm a Bernie Sanders uh, Democratic Socialist, by the way. And the Republicans, seems to me, never skip a beat demonizing the Democratic Party. So your opinion, why not, why not the Democratic Party and left-leaning organizations unify under a common campaign using Trump as the embodiment of the Republican agenda? As in, folks, this is what America gets when Republicans are elected. Damage to the environment, insulting of immigrants, violating oath of office, taking lunches away from children, and trying to remove Obamacare without a replacement. Yeah, I'm with you, Vic. You know, hopefully what you are describing is exactly what happens once we have a single nominee for president of the United States, once the Democratic Party has figured out who is going to be our standard bearer. Hopefully the whole party will pull together behind that man or woman, and onward we go. Stick around. just put up a new video for supporters of our program. You can find it over at TomHartman.com, talking about the relationship between uh, Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, and uh, basically the whole right-wing hate agenda on on Hispanics, by and large, saying that Hispanics are changing our culture. Really? This is European culture. I mean, you know, the, the Mayans and Aztecs got replaced by the Spaniards, remember? They're mostly Catholic. I don't see the, the cultural difference here. But Fox sure does. And also pointing out that Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, calls out Rupert Murdoch and says, you know, he's, quote, a cancer on Australian democracy. Well, apparently a cancer on American democracy as well. So you can check out this new video over at TomHartman.com. It's just available to people who are, you know, members of, supporters of our program. Vicky in Mexico. Hey, Vicky, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to correct you on something. You mentioned to a caller that the House Democrats put up about a year and a half ago, passed legislation about the voter paper ID and, you right. know, improving the voting. Right. They only took power in January. So, in fact, everything that the Democrats have done... Oh, my God, you're right. I've been... Is less than 10 months. Yeah, yeah, you're right. January 20th. <laughs> they were all sworn of last year. Um, or is it earlier or, or no, in January? Or this, year, but... 20, this is 20... This is 2019, yeah. So, so the election was in November 2018. The, they got sworn and in they're, in January. They're, they're sworn yeah. in, in er, earlier in January. 6th, yeah, so yeah. I think you're. Like I think you're right. Actually, yes. Anyway, yeah. so you know they've done quite a lot in less than 10 months. But so it hasn't been a year and a half that, that they. Thank you for that, away. Vicky. Thank you. Yeah, it's been 10 months basically. You know, yeah. it being October. So, Thank you. Happy to call from uh, from the uh, happy side of the border. Okay, <laughs> great. Thank you very I much. I vote in Texas, by the way, so I'm hoping to get rid of uh, help get rid of John Cornyn. Uh, there you go. Uh, good yeah. on you, Vicky. Vicky, Alrighty. I gotta move along. Thank you for the call, and thanks for setting me straight. I, you know, it's it just it, so much has happened. It uh, and I don't do time very well. Michael in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi, Tom. A couple of days ago, somebody uh, advocated for Cory Booker to be on the ticket if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or a progressive uh, got the nomination. Mm-hmm. I, w- I live in Florida, so I would like to advocate for Andrew Gillum. <laughs> oh, I, he'd be great. You know, Stacey Abrams of Georgia has also been discussed. There are a number of great candidates, uh, some of them uh, women, some of them people of color, some of them LGBT. The extraordinary thing about the Democratic Party is that people are just coming out of the woodwork. I mean, running for local office, running for state office, running for national office. Activism is at an all-time high, as far as I can tell. 
And I think it's a marvelous thing. And Andrew Gillum is a, a brilliant man, a brilliant man. And frankly, I think the election in Florida was essentially stolen from him. So, Michael, your I vote is noted. Yeah, amen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Dave, in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, thanks for, for listening to SiriusXM. You're a former intelligence official, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Hey, I had a question, and I'll try to make it quick, Tom, because I really want to get your take on this. I noticed uh, a possible vulnerability in opposing Trump. Okay. Mattis made these comments that were completely uncharacteristic. I mean, they were really negative against Trump, General Mattis, okay? Right. He had a speechwriter. I mean, it was one of these events, uh, you know, where you're roasting somebody, and he had a speechwriter write a bunch, a bunch of jokes for him. And you're right. He was insulting to the president in a way that typically you don't hear from military officials. Although he was really a former cabinet officer, so I guess he has the right. But back to you, Dave. Well, well, well I mean, it's a paradox. It's a paradox because he took a job that he knew he shouldn't have took in that administration, right? right. And Trump and, and, and people are going to use that against him. And also, I was listening to Howard Bloom last night, uh, you know, a right-wing ideologue, saying that the Congress of the United States of America is involved in a coup d'etat against the president, the legislative branch. This guy is a right-winger. Right. I mean, that should be blasphemy on the right, okay? The legislative branch is involved. Oh, no, they're, they, what they're saying is that is that impeachment is an attempted coup. I remember them going off about that during the Nixon impeachment. You know, what's interesting is I did not hear any, uh, now maybe maybe they were there and I just wasn't paying that much attention, but in 1998, when they were, as I recall, 1998 or 99, when they were impeaching Bill Clinton, I don't recall Democrats, you know, running around with their hair on fire saying, it's a coup, they're trying to remove the president, they're trying to undo an election. Now the Democrats were sitting around going, yeah, that was pretty bad what he did, you know, but uh, probably isn't worth impeaching him over. I mean, that's basically how the Democrats took it. Anyhow, back to you, Dave. Well, no, that's classic estate as law. That's, you know, Trump is the state, all right? That's right. what they're saying. Right. And that's that's not right-wing. That's not right-wing in a philosophy. But also, all right, look. It's, it's authoritarian. Of all, right, it's authoritarian. And, and, and Bolton, of all people, I can't believe I'm defending Bolton, but, I mean, Bolton's vile. But Bolton generally o- obeys the law. I mean, I worked under Bolton. Okay, Bolton, um, you know, but he is, a, remember, Bolton tried to pull us out of the International Criminal Court. Right. He's con- continuing this right-wing crusade against international bodies, okay? And, and American primacy is what Bolton represents, American primacy, okay? Well, I think George but, W. Bush then, did take us out of the International Criminal Court, did he not? Well, yeah, well, they're, they're against the International Criminal Court, they're against the U.N. High Commission on Refugees. They look at these bodies, intergovernmental bodies, as opposing Western liberalism. Well, okay? they describe them as threats to sovereignty, but, you know, I think the, your analysis is more accurate. Yes, and, and then, then Putin has pulled, has pulled Russia out of the Geneva Convention, Article 1 against, you know, investigating war crimes. Right. Russia is acting as a sort of a benefactor for authoritarians. They're in a counterweight to the United States. Right. But we are also using authoritarianism to try to promote Western liberalism, which is ridiculous, okay? My point is this. Simultaneously, the right wing is saying that Trump's isolationism, okay, is going to put him in office again. Okay, they're saying that Trump is pulling us out of international wars. Right. He's pulling us out of these messy, uh, you know, Rand Paul right. is pushing this. So my point, my, my question is this, because there's liberals that are accepting this as well. I hear other liberals saying, well, Trump, you know, wants to get us out of wars. I don't think so. And I believe that Trump is really making a move to make America an authoritarian state. He, I agree with you, Dave. He's re- and he just, I mean, he just pulled, he just put more troops into Saudi Arabia than he took out of Syria. Yeah. Okay. So you see this too. He's just reshuffling the deck. That's right. They're calling it. Uh, and he's doing it in support of authoritarian governments. You know, the Kurdish region of northern Syria was being run by the Kurds. They were having their own elections. It was being run on a secular basis rather than a religious basis, you know, unlike ISIS or for that matter, you know, unlike uh, in some, you know, the ways that Erdogan is now, you know, reinvented himself as a Turk, as a, a Muslim Turkish nationalist since that coup attempt. So the point of Russia pulling out of Article one of the war crimes convention, I mean, what you're just saying, we're watching the march of authoritarianism around the world. Well, remember how you and Trump is supporting beautiful. You know how you always do this beautiful thing about you, you recount the, the sacrifices of the founders of this country? And here's the thing. 
people that care about the founding of this country and the principles, all right, me, you, others, okay, millions of others, are we going to become some sort of victims of henchmen and authoritarian brokerage? This is brokerage, right? This Russia has been a factor. I got it, it Dave. This is, the answer to your question is we will know in November of next year. And we may know before that, but I think at the very bottom line, you know, the entire Republican Party has has gotten or the vast majority of the Republican Party has gotten on this authoritarian train. They've been on it for a while, ever since they started taking billionaire money in a big way. George W. Bush was going down that road. Dick Cheney certainly was lying us into these wars and things. Trump is obviously taking us in that direction. And either we will heal ourselves from this through the electoral process, as we did in 1800 when John Adams took us down an authoritarian route with the Alien Sedition Acts in 1798. In the election of 1800, the people just overwhelmingly rejected that. That's why it was called the American Revolution of 1800, the title of the book that Dan Sisson and I put together, and or that Dan principally wrote, and you know I, I did some commentary on. And I think that we may be at that point where we're about ready for the American Revolution of 2020. And uh, you know, I, at least I hope so. I hope so. I don't see any other way for us to make it through. Thanks a lot for the call, Dave. Mark, watching Free Speech TV in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, Mark, what's up? Yes, plebiscite or referendum. I don't hear much of that anymore. I don't, I'm not sure if it's actually in the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution. It, what happened okay. is that most of the states that became states after the 1880s, when widespread political corruption was being driven by the rail and oil oligarchs, most of those states, in order to get around their own corrupt politicians, wrote into their constitutions the ability of citizens to, to have ballot initiatives, what you're referring to as plebiscites. It's only about half our states, and there is no federal provision for that. Okay, but in history, haven't, has it not been used? Not at a federal level. There's no provision for it in the Constitution. Okay. It, it has well, been used at the state level in those states, in those roughly half of our states that allow for it in their Constitution. The other half of the states don't. If you want something done, you've got to go through the legislature. Wow, okay. Or vote. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for the call. John in Biloxi, Mississippi. Hey, John, what's up? Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call, and I appreciate it. I have a question for you, Tom. I just got finished listening to Donald Trump congratulating the two women who are now in space and the first two women to take a spacewalk. Mm -hmm. And his daughter is sitting next to him, and, and so is the vice president. I'd like to know what in the world is his daughter doing voicing her opinion when the vice president himself didn't even open his mouth, and what is she doing there? Yeah. She's the heir to the Trump crime family dynasty. I mean, that's what she's doing there. And, and she, you know, she's just like sitting there hanging out, having a good time and, and getting ready to, to inherit the whole thing. And frankly, you know, her husband, the, the grifter, you know, uh, Jared Kushner and his father, the grifter before him, who went to prison for being a grifter. I want to know what happened, how Jared got that billion dollars out of the Middle East to bail out his property on 666 Fifth Avenue. I want to know what's going on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWNGOLD. Hey, thanks so much for supporting our program. We have a, a new video up over uh, at TomHartman.com, or there's a link to it at TomHartman.com for the people who do support our program, and it's about how 
these writers, Foe and Monk, in the Journal of Democracy, have documented how over the last 40 years or so, Americans have gone from a, f a very small little trickle of Americans saying, yes, we'd like a strongman leader who doesn't have to answer to Congress, to that number being 49% last year. And the reason for this appears to be that the rich have been massively ripping off the country and, and doing so in part by controlling our political structures. And, and everyday people know this. Now, there are remedies for this. There are numerous solutions for this. But we really first have to understand how much damage, real damage, this is doing to the United States of America. It's all over that video over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. This is from the introduction titled In Putin's Footsteps. On New Year's Eve 1999, journalists in the Russian president's press pool had a feeling that things were going to change. They were right. The feeble and aging Boris Yeltsin, who could barely board a plane or stand for a 15-minute press conference, was about to deliver his end-of-the-year address, in which he resigned and ceded power to his prime minister and hand-picked successor, Vladimir Putin. Once head of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the post-communist democratic version of the dreaded KGB, Putin was indeed an unusual choice, having served as the head of the government for only a few months. But the 48-year-old ex-spy, who had become the youngest Kremlin leader since the Soviet Union's founders, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, had a quiet energy that seemed boundless, as boundless as the geographic expanses contained within Russia's 11, yes, 11 time zones. After taking over from Yeltsin as acting president on the first day of the new millennium, and after winning by a landslide presidential elections three months later, Putin, in the year to come, held over a dozen press conferences and traveled to almost two dozen countries and at least a quarter of Russia's 89 regions, which are spread out over 11 time zones. Altogether, he was seen in public and on television more often than Yeltsin during most of his eight-year presidency. Suddenly, the press had something to report. The news stories were no longer those of Yeltsin's Russia, which was perceived both at home and abroad as weak, insignificant, and a corrupt boogeyman reeling from his Cold War defeat. These were stories of an enigmatic young technocrat tirelessly crisscrossing the country and meeting with workers, farmers, and cultural figures, attending theater galas and factory openings. All that uplifting travel, Russia was starving for the Kremlin's attention, connected Putin to ordinary people and gave him the idea of delivering a rousing New Year's Eve televised address to the nation. Standing before the Kremlin's Spassky Tower just before the giant bells rang in the year 2001, under starry winter skies in front of a large snow-dusted Christmas tree, he pledged to counter the negativity of the post-Soviet decade and set the country on a new positive course. And this he did. In his address, the ardent young leader looked both charming and in charge when he spoke of Russia's great future, heroic past, and enduring spirit. Putin had often appeared a reserved technocrat, but soon he would demonstrate a talent for finding opportunities to impress the heartland. He knew the best way to get to people's hearts, showing them that his priority was returning Russia to the world stage as a major power of formidable dimensions. Originally, he had an even bolder plan for his New Year's address, and he had run it by journalists in his press pool during one of his trips around Russia. Without a hint of doubt in his voice, Putin told them that, quote, Russia is an enormous country, a great country. We need to remember that our strength is our size. What if I were to travel through Russia's limitless land in one night through all of its 11 time zones, stopping in each one at midnight local time to record a New Year's message to show our nation's greatness, our richness, the diversity of our mother Russia, our unity, and our worth? Even though Russia's time zones are exaggerated in number, there should be only seven, according to generally accepted geographic markers of Greenwich Mean Time. It's a 24-hour cycle, also called UTC. Maintaining them is not only a political matter, it is reflective of the national identity, state power, and international influence. Russia has 11 time zones more than any other country, and that, as Russians would have it, bespeaks its status in a way no one can deny. Often the time that appears on a nation's iconic clock, Big Ben in the United Kingdom, for example, or those daunting dials on the Spassky Tower in Russia's case, is a subtle way of representing where power lies. In Russia, every time zone is first referred to in relation to MSK, Moscow Standard Time, with UTC only following. Moreover, many countries don't even adhere to the 24-hour GMT UTC's neat meridians. China's huge landmass should straddle five different time zones, 
yet operates according to just one. Inhabitants of western China, if they follow their clocks, have dark mornings and light evenings. But nobody doubts that only the Beijing time matters. When Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela in 1999, he created a new time zone that would set Venezuela 30 minutes apart from neighboring countries. That was his way of letting the world know that Venezuela was striking out on its own. But Putin's idea of showcasing his country's temporal and geographic diversity in just one night was certainly unique, and it accorded with his plans to return Russia to its lost great power status. It also sprung from what Putin knew Russians expect of their leader, something close to godlike status. Keen on creating a leader's image steeped in tradition, history, and mythology, often associated with the uniqueness of the Russian soul, spiritual endurance, persevering patience, belief in miracles, and material sacrifice. He wanted to be seen as the dead morose, the granddad Frost, the Russian Santa Claus, bearing gifts of renewed national importance and self-confidence. Capitalizing on Russia's size, 6,000 miles from east to west, Putin hoped to begin restoring his country's grandeur, once czarist, then Soviet, and now Russian. The idea was bold and beautiful, but unfortunately, unrealizable. The book In Putin's Footsteps by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. Whoops, did something to my own, my own ears here. Patty Lockhart is with us. She is the executive producer of Nurse Talk, Healthcare in America, a project of the National Nurses United and California Nurses, nursetalksite.com. Nursetalksite, S-I-T-E.com. S-I-T-E. Patty, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's great having you here with us, too. And uh, by the way, the Twitter handle is at Nurse Talk. So I understand that you know, National Nurses United, which is the largest union of nurses in the country, has gotten political. And, uh, you know, we've talked with yes. uh, nurses over the years about this, but uh, give us a recap of where you all are at right now. Well, National Nurses United was actually the first or organization to give us a green light. We were ba back in 2009. We started this crazy little program called Nurse Talk, where laughter is the best medicine, started by two really funny nurses saying, gee, we could really, you know, uh, use the same model as car talk because People would that listen to us if, if there was laughter. And nurses are very funny anyway. So we started the show. I pitched it, had lots of people just to go, why in the world would we want nurses on the radio? We've got doctors. <laughs> so it started oh, then. But finally, in San Francisco Bay Area, where we live, we, a program director said, you know, I kind of like this thing. Let's, let's throw them, literally throw them on the air for 12 weeks and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And that was at Green 960, a, 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 pro, a station you're familiar with. And yeah. we did 12 weeks of chaos and came out the other end with a sponsor. We pitched it to National Nurses United, uh, California Nurses Association, as a media vehicle, a voice for nurses in media. Roseanne DeMauro, who was a wonderful visionary, said, uh, green light, let's do it. That was 10 years ago, and the partnership has lasted that's great. And Until you, and, now. And you all are also really aggressively arguing for Medicare for all. Absolutely. Why, that's, why, why is this an issue for nurses? Well, that's a core issue for nurses because it would be a really simple understanding that they are on the front lines of what happens, not only when people don't have access access to health care. They see things in the emergency rooms. When people don't have access, emergency rooms become hospitals for them. There's chaos. But w even when they do have insurance, Tom, nurses and nurse managers on the floor are now fighting with insurance companies to get the right treatment for their patients. And in the middle of protocols and treatment that's ordered by doctors, nurses find themselves literally having to pick up the phone and call the insurance companies to see if they can move forward with treatment. I had a doctor in Washington, D.C. who, had, crazy. who had a full-time nurse practitioner in his office. And nurse practitioner is kind of the top end of the food yes, chain for nurses. Yes. And a full-time nurse practitioner whose only job was to call and harass insurance companies. That's right. 
Now, isn't that, a, first of all, it's a waste of nurse practitioner. Yeah. And it, it's just, and another thing, too, and I know that you've been talking about this, is that um, we have 44 million uninsured, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better. We also have an issue with Medicare Social Security. You've been talking about Medicare Advantage and what's happening in the, the right, Medicare Advantage. Which is Advantage. the privatized corporate You know, Medicare Advantage has been around, and Kaiser has done a fairly decent and honest uh, uh, um, platform for that. They, they've administered people's money for Medicare Advantage for a long time with not a lot of issues. Of course, they're a nonprofit. They're a nonprofit. So enter United Healthcare, enter Humana, Blue Cross. Two or three years ago, this thing got crazy, and now they are Medicare Advantage. They are at the trough for Medicare dollars, and this is uh, and and what they say they provide seniors is not what they get. They manage their money, and that means if you had straight Medicare, uh, your dollars would go to certain procedures. You would get long-term care. You would get a stay in a rehab center. Well, if you've got Medicare Advantage by one of the insurance companies, then they're taking your dollars and saying, "You know what? I think you only get 20 days. You're you're supposed to get 100 days in rehab, but you're going to get you're you're only going to get 20." So, all that's that That's all we're going to pay for because that part goes to their administration. Yeah, so when, whenever so I see these they're lining their pockets. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever I see these ads on TV, I you know, the thought that comes into my mind is where is the money coming from to spend millions of dollars on television advertising? Oh, it's coming out of my premiums. It's, it's coming, coming out of your premiums. It's, it, it's coming out of, you know, them saying, no, I'm not going to pay for that procedure. That's right. Patty Lockhart um, with uh, the executive producer of Nurse Talk. NurseTalkSite.com is the website. Nurse, at Nurse Talk is the Twitter handle. Patty, great having you in the studio. Great. Ha- Thanks great so much here, for dropping Thank by. Thank you for all you do. Keep up thank the great you. work. Thank you. We sure You're out there all. fighting the fight for we all of us. Fighting. God bless you. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be back. Not sure which camera. Okay. We'll be back on Monday. Same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there. Get active. Tag. You're it. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 